The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Click. Hi, Sarah. I like your sweater. And we're live. It Wait, are is... you guys getting a terrible echo now? No. Do you have more than one Crowdcast window open? You do this sometimes. That would, would account for a terrible echo. Hold on. Yes, I do. Yeah, close one of them. It is Tuesday, December 7th. That's Pearl Harbor Day to you, 2021, 5.02 p.m. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, shit, why did I vote for Fluffy Poodle Shirt uh, in the poll here about what Ben was wearing when I knew from his... Uh, 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 Twitter feed today that Fluffy Poodle Shirt had only shipped today, which is admittedly very exciting. Have they sent um, you a message about it, though? Or is it just a notification of shipment absent a message? It is a normal old no clothing monster. Your order has shipped. And uh, so it's super exciting fluffy poodle shirt is on the way but as you can see i am not wearing fluffy poodle shirt and uh so in order to uh uh answer these questions correctly that are in the poll and i want to uh flag them for you for those who are watching but haven't looked at the poll the first question is what do you think ben is wearing on the show today and the answer uh fluffy poodle shirt dominated the uh um the answers, a shoe bill shirt came in second. A suit got only three votes. And somebody just added a fourth vote. Once you can see what I'm wearing, it doesn't count. Three votes. Second uh, question is, guess where Ben and Sarah were before today's show? I guessed wrong. Uh, uh, two uh, votes here account for over almost 90% of the the vote. One is attending a secret meeting of the Revolutionary Council, whatever the hell that means. Yeah, the other is eating foe. But the answer, the true answer, which got only two votes, is interviewing Suzanne and Lucienne, uh, which we were in fact doing. We had a great conversation uh, with the actors who played Suzanne and Lucienne on A French Village. And this brings us to guess where Ben and Sarah will be after today's show. Uh, my house overwhelmingly won. Again, <laughs> inexplicable number of votes for a secret meeting of the Revolutionary Council, if only such <laughs> thing existed. Uh, interestingly, my house beat Sarah's house by a lot. Villeneuve got one vote. The French ambassador's house, which is the correct answer. They do know that Villeneuve is like a fictional town, right? Well, that's, one that's person, I suspect it was Ducks with Pants, voted for uh, Villeneuve. Um, uh, uh, the French ambassador's residence, which is why I am wearing a suit. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, so we are not allowed to have fun anymore. But actually today we kind of are allowed to have fun. Because uh, interviewing Suzanne and Lucienne and the showrunner, producer of French Village Podcast, uh, was uh, with French Village was oh, super fun. I have and so going many questions. To a reception to honor them uh, this evening is going to be fun as well. So, Sarah Longwell, welcome back to the show. How did you like our our interviews with with the French Villagers? Uh, well, I, I I don't know. Ben was like really like cool through the whole thing. Uh, Were you fangirling? Oh, I was like hardcore fangirling. And let me tell you why. Let me tell, tell you me why. everything. So first of all, like Lucienne, the, the woman who plays Lucienne Marie. It's fucking hot. Yes. That's not where I was going, but it's a true, true statement. But nothing but, like the character. <laughs> like, which is, of course, normal. They're actors. It's not like that's how they. But like, imagine seeing Lucienne being like, like big hoop earrings, super pretty, funny, modern, like, 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 um, 
she was very sarcastic. She like in the beginning, she was like, they were wearing masks and Ben and I weren't, which actually maybe was terrible, but we were, and she was like, she was well, like, we were, doing we, po- we were recording a podcast. We were getting ready to they, podcast. They took off their masks. No, they did. But she was like, um, she was like, do you have COVID? <laughs> and I'm like, no. And she's like, okay. Uh, like she was, I don't, I'm not even doing it justice, but it was, no, it was, she was, she was very funny. And, uh, and couldn't have been less like Lucienne, which I don't, I don't know like why that surprises anybody, but well, it surprised me. Like a solid, no, 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 no. I, I mean, we've never discussed this, but there's like, I mean, like in acting, like there is like, there are like people who are typecast for a reason. Like I was just like, right. Like they, like that there is like something about the nature of their personality lends them to being typecast or something else. And like, they really just are like kind of. Well, you you want to hear how, how not typecast uh, Marie Kremer was in, in, uh, should we, should we give away the, the, the breaking, the, get a lot, a little bit of news here. Um, she revealed in this that um, two things. Um, one is that uh, the director and uh, had to keep insisting that she look at the floor more um, because uh, Lucienne is the sort of person who stares at the floor and doesn't look up. Because uh, That's and, true. And, I noticed that a lot about, like, she doesn't um, do that. She doesn't do a lot of and, eye contact. Yeah, and she found this uh, upsetting and uh, sort of degrading, um, but agrees that it is uh, the appropriate uh, posture for Lucienne. Uh, And the second thing was she finally got so sick of uh, the submissive posture of Lucienne uh, that she sent the director and uh, writer an email that's like, I can't do this anymore. uh, this character's got to do something. And shortly thereafter is when Lucienne has her lesbian affair, um, uh, which I thought was was just the most surprising There's a lesbian account. affair in a French village? It's a kiss. Oh, yeah. See, not... Kate, you should have stuck with it. Uh, what but... the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> but, then, but what's great is that, is that Marie, the woman who plays Lucienne, was like, so she told him, like, oh, just I can't keep doing all this, like, submissive stuff. And then, like, so she, they give her, like, a lesbian season, and she's like, I feel like you went too far. Like, I feel like this is too <laughs> too big a jump. Uh, I just wanted a rabbit or something. That was a pun. Yeah. But, but wait, whatever. can we just back up for one second? So, like, this is, let me just tell you how this all came to be. Because it's, like, yes, one day. Yes, I would like to know how it came to be. So, Ben and I get an email What's from. What's person? No, no, Ben and okay. I get an email from the guy who like coordinates things with the French embassy and, and, and the American, what's it called, Ben? So it's, 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 a, it's an organization called, I believe it's called American Media Abroad. Um, but let me check that because I, if we're going to be talking about them, I, well, uh, but, but they were, I wanna... yeah, but they were basically like, we, the, the writers and some of the actors are coming into town. They're getting an award um, for the show and they want to know if you want to talk to them and like would you like to come to the french embassy and meet them and and i was like are you kidding this is like the greatest thing that's ever happened to me uh and it is funny in the interview ben is ben is being cool ben's asking like historical questions you know like like how did they like how did the guy get the idea for the show and was it about politics at the time and i was like i want to talk about why Hortense went mad? Like why she went crazy? I would like to know why you made. Why did why did Lucienne have a lesbian like season? Like what? I, I just I didn't even get to all my questions about like why did they do the things in the woods? But it was it was wild to get to have. And let me just tell you about the one of the funniest elements of this is there. Sarah's gonna being, like, gonna gonna join. Uh, uh, she's gonna become a correspondent for uh, uh, what's it called. Um, uh, that television channel that does Hollywood stuff. Um, TMZ? Yeah. It's literally a letter. TMZ? E? Yeah. E, yeah. I was thinking of E. Uh, 
but but the, what, what was so funny is they were like i at the towards the end they were like so why is this popular in america like they were like <laughs> yeah. this show's been over for five years like why are you why do you have a podcast about it why are you suddenly and of course my my questions for them were things like do you think we're like weird stalkers? Or do you think it's like, are you flattered that there's a podcast about you? Like, do you think it's weird that these Americans have this whole podcast devoted to your show? Um, I also just want to impress upon the audience here that the- uh, Did you tell uh, them you that it wasn't actually popular, that it was just you guys? No, it it's not. It's, it's, it's not, Kate. Uh, so I, 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 I want to impress upon you all the role that the In Lieu of Fun community played in this. Um, uh, Eve Gumont flew in from uh, Quebec to be our translator in the uh, in this conversation, and uh, 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 you will hear her voice prominently in the um, uh, in the podcast, which uh, will go up when Great American Priya Gada uh, 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 prepares it. So yes, it will be up on the uh, uh, on the French Village podcast feed. Yes, we're I'm... gonna re we're gonna release the whole thing, but first it's gonna require some editing because there was a lot of like they spoke English, but then when they really had something to say, they would go into French because they couldn't express it in English. So then Ev would have to kind of jump in and translate, and so it was it was a little bit choppy, and we'll have to do some editing. Um, but it was I love all of this. I love yeah. all of this. Can it I? It was can super I... good fun. Yeah. Can I ask like? What did they did they give any kind of elucidation on what the reception of it has been in Europe to their depiction of the war and to like because like I mean I know that we're like you're kind of you and at various points I got maybe obsessed with a small bunny but there's like and there's lots of little plot points but it's I am a pretty kind of large curious. bunny actually I mean it was large hair it, yeah I mean, um, Captain I mean, Carrot is not a small rabbit um, but. I really do want to know, like, is the perception that they have done like a service in kind of a nuanced telling of, I mean, because Ben, I loved Ben's history and stuff. And I assumed that, I, I mean, I just kind of am curious, like from a European perspective, whether it's appreciated as much as it is here. Because I feel like it explains a lot of like history and in the water kind of culture that probably exists in Europe that like doesn't exist here. Can I just tell you, like, the, the most interesting thing that we kind of didn't know what to do with, like, here's some behind the scenes. I was, like, having, I was, like, writing notes to Ben, and is that when Ben, you know, opens with a question about, you know, what was on your mind politically? Like, were you seeing the rise of, and this isn't exactly what you said, but the rise of fascism in France, and that was that the reason why he wanted to tackle the subject? And this guy was literally like, no. Like, I was just looking for, like, what would be a cool story to tell. And uh, I was really into cinema. And so I was trying to figure out how to make, like, a show that was cinematic. And I just wanted it to be popular and interesting. Um, and he was also kind of, um, like, like loosey-goosey in his own Like, he told a bunch of funny stories about the historian they had and how they were overruling the historian to be like, no, I know this wouldn't happen then, but this is a more interesting thing, like, story to tell. Well, the historian and was, like, fine. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, they, huh? I, I, but I also this is like think, a really interesting point in like the kind of death of the author idea. Sorry, go ahead, Ben. No, I I think you know this show was wildly popular in France. It was sort of the number one show in France, and one of the things that really kind of blew me away about this conversation is the woman who plays Lucienne. Uh, uh, Marie Kramer. Can we like give her a name? What's her, the actress? Her name is name? Marie Kramer. Um, okay. Uh, and she told us, which I, I guess I would have, like this show was made over 10 years, which since like we watched it, I watched it over less than a year. I never really thought about that, that like they started making this in 2008 and they finished it in 2017. And this woman was... 25 when she started playing Lucienne and 35 when she finished playing Lucienne. It's like, it's like um, such an interesting date range. Yeah, exactly. Like and personal development for a woman. <laughs> and, and it's a, um, uh, and, you know, we think of it as this condensed period of time, which, because that's how we watched it over COVID. But it's actually like 
you know, The Sopranos. It it, it ran for a long yeah. time in France, and 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 I I do think some of the history that we think of as like exquisitely detailed is just sufficiently known there that it's that it's it may be a little bit less impressive that they got so much right as it is as it impresses me but right. um but like i think that this is like an interesting point like i think that like you know you grow up in the united states and if you go to public school and you take history you learn about the mason dixon line and you understand the civil war and you understand significant moments in u.s history that are like then kind of just like there is a passiveness in which you take on that history and a passiveness in which you re like i guess i was a you're not actively interrogating it because you're eight or 10 or like 14, right? You're just like, oh yeah, like we freed the, like the slaves and that was great. And these bad things happened. And now there's still some racism and bad stuff in the South. And there's like, but like, there are things that when you go down to the South or you see, you would like understand in a different light when you're 25, knowing having like imbibed that history than you would if you were French and went to the South. It's like into like to Atlanta, right? Or to like Savannah. Like that's, I, I mean, like my point being that like, that would strike me as the same thing. If that is true of the United States and my understanding of being a US citizen, like, and the civics around that, like that, that would have to be true of the history and the length of history of like the French and their role in the war and all of the complications. But I don't know, how do they teach World War II in France? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. I, 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 you know, and probably my French is not good enough to try to figure it out. Um, but here's, here's what he did say. So like we asked the, sh when Ben was asking the showrunner the question of the politics, one of the things that he said was like his grandmother always talked about the occupation. So like, you know, this guy's probably, he's older than us or maybe, maybe he's like 50 now. I don't know. Um, but he is, uh, he, he was talking about how like when he was a kid, everybody who was like his grandparents aged, the occupation was the thing that had shaped them and formed them. And so they did grow up with the connection to, you know, uh, the way people talked about it and the devastation that it wrought, the psychological, you know, just how much damage it did. Um, but also, I mean, what what I liked about what he said was that I think what we came away with from the show is ultimately what he was trying to get at, which is that people, when these extreme circumstances come up, that you know, there's some universality to the way that people respond to things, right? That like it can echo through history because people are still people. Um, and even though you learn lessons, um, but he wasn't necessarily setting out to make a political point. He was making up, he wanted to make, tell a story first and foremost. And then he also wanted to show how the gray areas exist in people, which I think of course is, is the show and does, it does that quite effectively. Um, the other thing was like, you know, Ben and I argued a lot on the podcast about Lucienne uh, yeah. and like what the point was. And I do think that when she described her character, it was in this way of like, imagine you're just a sort of Catholic person, you know, you're, you've grown up Catholic and all of a sudden, like all this stuff's happening around you. Like, you know, cause talking about like all of her bad choices and she she was saying how like Lucienne was a maddening person to play and like made her furious on one hand, but on the other hand, she felt the need to defend her sometimes because like she didn't ask to be put in the middle of an occupation. She's just like a random person who was trying to live life and like, um, but for this occupation might have, you know, not been so terrible. Can I, but like, this is the, this was to me the kind of like really interesting part of, of the show, even though I didn't watch it as much as you guys did because I couldn't handle it. Like, like that is to me, like I grew up and I know we've talked about this, but I grew up in Western New York and it was like, I grew up 
like playing in a house that was literally on the underground railroad like had hidden rooms and like things like that it was uh my not my house but like my friend's house and like that this was like being a hero like in this time was seen as somewhat somewhat like that was most of the story that was told with like the people who behave what's so interesting about the french village is that they tell the story of like not only the heroes but the sometimes heroes and the sometimes villains and the the it's 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 the gray i think that they tell like it's not hard to imagine from your history book the heroes or the villains it is like the people like lucian who like are sometimes absolutely evil and sometimes really good right like i don't know yeah, I mean that was that was sort of the point. They wanted to tell a story about this thing that happened that was a compelling story, but that they didn't really want to have. He- they 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 wanted to tell a story of regular people and how they reacted and um, wanted to show the gray, which I think they successfully did. Um, there was a lot of great tidbits in there, you know. Um, one of the things, so so Suzanne, who is I think for especially for Ben, so. Right, Ben, you were you weren't Which one is Suzanne again? She was the socialist and she's very Oh yeah. She's oh, also like, very lovely. Is it the cough? Is the cough? No. No, no, no. She's oh. the the one who becomes the lover of the uh Marcel Larcher, the the, the communist the communist younger brother of the Oh, uh, I yeah, I never got far enough in the story. Didn't meet her. Okay, then I don't know. Sorry, but she, but she's 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 something of a. Oh, she's like one of the closer you get to a hero. Ben really always loved her, and I gotta tell you, Ben, you were like very. I don't. Ben was like totally cool during this whole thing, and I was like, you know, Sarah, I, I do interviews like multiple times a week. Um, I mean, it is something that like, yeah, like. I do a lot of. Sarah doesn't interview people. Oh, I talk to people, and so I just wanted to talk to them. I didn't. Like, I just don't... wanted to like chat and hear no, but about you, their lives. You were, you were asking uh, uh, your questions, and I was asking my questions. I was definitely fanboying. Uh, um, I mean, that was Suzanne. You know, she was. She's. But the thing is, it's not actually Suzanne. It's uh, uh, Constance Dolay who uh, plays Suzanne. Who's a very, very interesting person, by the way. Um, I, once hmm. she got rolling in English, uh, I thought she was saying, I, I'm excited actually for people to hear the podcast because I thought she was saying really interesting, thoughtful things uh, yeah. about the way that people, not about making political judgments, but the way that people take the stuff, take take it and like, they were they were pretty interested in the way that we had found the show so attractive, right? And I yeah. think we so we so she was very interested, and we were having a pretty interesting discussion about like why because they don't really know us or who we are. They listened to the very first episode of the podcast, and they listened to the last episode of the podcast coming into it. I think to get a sense of it, uh, but I I think that they didn't quite realize until we explained to them how the show had such resonance for Americans. Uh, in the Trump era who were thinking about how this kind of thing happens with people. How do people fall in line? How do they become complicit in something all the time acknowledging that it's not the same, but that the decisions people make, actually there's a lot of echoes in there, a lot of things you can identify. Um, And I think upon hearing that, they had an interesting reaction to us and that that we saw that value in the show. So can I I ask a question? So like in like freshman English, right? Like you are in like college, you kind of learn about the death of the author. I don't know if you guys remember this, but the- Watch, here's the, the death of the author. Right, Ben, okay, great. Good impersonation. Right, just... <laughs> um, anyways, the idea being that like, you can never get into the mind of the author and truly understand, you know, because, the, because eventually, uh, the author dies and there's no author there to ask questions to and the questions will always be incomplete and also who the fuck cares because they just put out a thing into the world and so it is open to interpretation and so like people can take from it what they will um and i actually want to bring this up because when i was in college 
I took a, a class that kind of changed my life, which was called Middle March and the Sopranos, which was about like we read George Eliot's Middle March, which was at first published in serial. Like, I don't know if you like you like, like, remember this, but it's like now a very thick book. But it's like it was published in serial, like kind of like segments. Um, and it was very salacious and had the same type of like crazy character development and drama in theory that like the Sopranos had. And it was like judged next to the Sopranos. So like we would watch episodes of the Sopranos and then we would also like watch, uh, read like Middlemarch. Might have done more watching of the Sopranos than I did reading of Middlemarch, but regardless, the death of the author exists in both. Like you didn't, we weren't allowed to look at the director's cuts with David Chase talking about shit, right? Like there wasn't any of that. And so I'm really interested because it's so fascinating to me that like, but also not at all surprising that the author is like disappointing or has no intention well, in so, creating some of these things. So first of all, one of the striking things about it uh, and and the, the chief writer uh, uh, on uh, Un Village Francais is a, is a man named Frédéric Cravin uh, who was supposed to be here but uh, couldn't because he, he got COVID, unfortunately. And so he's, in, he's okay, but he's in, in, in France. Um, the reverence with which all three of them talked about him uh, actually made me uh, pleased that Sarah and I had spent so much time on the show talking about the screenwriting because hmm. the writing of this is a is a huge, huge part of their, uh, um, Marie at one point said that, you know, without the writer, we are nobody. Um, and like they talked about him just all the time. And I thought that was a, just a really interesting account of not in the sense that you mean, but how dead the author isn't, right? That like, in, like, well, just the fact that she wrote to the author and she wanted to change her, like her, she, like it's like it's like an a, interesting is an interesting tidbit. I don't know. It's there, like it's, there is a dialogue that this reflects that is quite pervasive. I think between the actors and the writers, and you know she she talks about Cravant with this amazing sense of him as a collaborator in this project. And, you know, I, I always think of a screenplay as something that kind of shows up and you work with. Um, but uh, I was really impressed at how live the sense of the writer was in this conversation. Yeah, it was. So Sarah, how's democracy doing? Yeah. Um, <laughs> eh. I was going to say, yeah, we should talk about something other than French Village. People will think that like French Village is what I do. Uh, <laughs> quick side hobby this was just this was just a, such a nice little culmination of everything to have them notice that the podcast existed call up and want to hang out uh yeah, just, yeah, a dream, just, awesome. a, just a little dream come true uh just wild and and it also can i just say i don't that's know why you I put don't, things out into the world like this, this is that's what i was just gonna say that's what i was just gonna say like there is something crazy about putting things out in the world because then stuff comes back to you it's just i don't know it's just a cool experience but anyway democracy um yeah, so uh You feeling good about great. it? You, you, the it's over not, under is It's not great. I don't really um, know that I want your hit quick hits on democracy right now. I'm just feeling like tired about yeah. it. <laughs> All right, no democracy today. Well, well, We're taking a break I mean, we, from we, democracy. We can, well, instead of I mean we can talk about <laughs> politics. Uh so I cuz I have this have a little bit of a democracy uh I'm concerned about both. Um but I do think there's a bunch of interesting things happening uh, on the political front. So, like, I don't know if you guys have recognized this, but we're about to – it's going to be Christmas. And then it's going to be New Year's, right? Oh. Not in very soon. Very soon. <gasps> and then it's 2022. Oh. And 2022 is going gonna, is gonna to be here. And the second that we turn the corner after the holidays, uh, you know, I think our first uh, primary is in March. Um, and so there's for money or something. 
I feel like everyone's hitting me up for money now. I'm like Wikipedia, like every page I go to, it's like some little like interstitial trying to be like, it's the end of the year, donate. I'm like, hmm. I'm not asking anybody for money. I'm only I'm only bringing this up as a as just a you know, it feels like we just had an election. It was all so exhausting. It was extended by Trump not conceding, by there being an insurrection, by there being a bunch of things that just made the process go on and on. And then we've been in this, you know, Biden basically had nine months, but like we're going to turn the corner on 2022 and it's going to become about um, these primaries. And it's going to be, uh, I think, pretty wild. If you're, if, can I just give you a quick 2022 rundown of what we're about to see? So I don't know if, have I, have I come on, I don't know if we've talked since the, um, the elections in, in Virginia and New Jersey, but obviously huge, huge swings against the Democrats. Some of that historical, some of it COVID, some of it, the candidates and other things. Um, but the, there's a lot of talk about Glenn Youngkin being like a kind of a specific kind of candidate. And the thing that I want to stress, uh, that I'm trying to explain to people going into 2022, there are not other Glenn Youngkins on these tickets. You are about to see a host of crazy Trumpers, Herschel Walker in Georgia, Eric Greitens, the guy who tied a woman up in his basement, photographed her and blackmailed her. Uh, and, yeah, and Greitens and, and, is a prince of a guy. He's already yeah. resigned once in disgrace. And he is why? not leaving. Why are, why, how is it possible that like people come back from these things? I just don't understand. Am I, I can't possibly be alone in that. Kate, it's just because you have. Like literally John Edwards is living down like a Dave Matthews concert and a haircut. And like. It's just, you got to get over your own bias. You have anti-tying up women in your basement bias. And. um, It's not that. You know. Is my bias. It's the extorting her with it. That I find it to be the bias. Oh, you're okay with the tying up part? like um, if it was consensual, like who the it hell was is not it? consensual. Not consensual. Exactly. This is this no. This is bad. This guy's. I mean, That's this is why he's a bad, bad guy. And this is what's this is what's wild. If you think about as recently as 2010, you know the Democrats got the crap kicked out of them in Obama's first term, uh, and and in the House, but they kind of held on to the Senate, and they kind of held on to the Senate because. They had legitimate rape guy. They had Christine O'Donnell. I am not a witch woman. Uh, they had a bunch of really insane Senate candidates. And so the Democrats didn't lose as badly in the Senate. Uh, and I do think that 2022 is potentially shaping up in, in a similar way where you're probably going to get routed in the House. But the Senate candidates, Senate candidates matter. They're statewide races. And and so you've got Eric Greitens. And now whoever wins the Republican primary in Missouri is almost guaranteed to be the senator in Missouri, because it's Missouri. Same with Alabama. Alabama, you've got Mo Brooks running. Mo Brooks, who was Donald Trump's warm-up act on the January 6th, who said today is the day American patriots start kicking ass right before they stormed the Capitol. Uh, he believes the election was stolen uh, as a big stop the steal guy. Josh Mandel wait, in Ohio. Wait, yeah. Sarah, you, you don't think the Democrats could put anywhere in Missouri that there is a Democrat who could Claire McCaskill... Eric Greitens. I'm sure that there is. And frankly, I mean, this is my, in my sort of fantasy politics, uh, you would see some either former Republicans or people pretty, you know, people kind of center right challenging them as either independents or as Democrats, because Eric Greitens is totally beatable in that state. Josh Mandel, Tim Ryan is actually a good candidate. Ohio. Look, I would tell you normally, absolutely no Republican is going to get beat in Ohio. Because Ohio is really red now. It's like a Trump, you know, it's like an R plus nine, 10 state. Trump won yeah. by eight and change. But people hate Josh Mandel. And and Tim Ryan's actually a pretty good candidate. In Pennsylvania, you've got this wild race where Dr. Oz, you know, Sean Parnell, also a wife abuser. Because the, the case was going to be unsealed, he dropped out. He was Trump endorsed. Now you've got Dr. Oz entering the race. There might be a normie that gets in um, here. But like... There's just um, between Herschel Walker and Eric Greitens and Josh Mandel, Dr. Oz, like there is about to be a circus, a Trumpy, Trumpy circus on the Republican side. You know, Yunkin won by kind of, you know, he showed some 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 Trumpy leg with the early on, but he didn't have to run in a primary. 
And so he Trumpy talked about leg election. is a term I never want to hear again. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, one of the my terms of art as a result, Kate texts me every time somebody uses the phrase tongue bath. Uh, yes. because I said I, it like, one time. I actually hate you for this. <laughs> like, I'm like, every time I hear it, I'm like, why? And like now, like every time Nina like licks her bed, like incessantly, I'm like, oh my God, like Sarah Long will get out of my brain. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Chris oh. Argerus has a relevant question here. Trumpy leg. Oh. <laughs> okay. Um, so... I guess this might be more of a band, but I'm curious what what, uh, what uh, Sarah would say about if nothing that Trump does matters to Trump voters. Um, so is there anything to this, quote, alternative Mueller report that Andrew Weissman has called, quote, an internal report memorializing everything we found, especially in light of the former guy now confessing to obstruction of justice on Fox, where he said, I don't think I could have survived if I didn't fire Comey. Sorry, I had uh, your question confused uh, with Daniel's, I think. Um, so, look, I think, uh, um, uh, but look, so let me, It's a, so th this is a little off topic, so let me deal yep. with it uh, briefly. Look, um, is it going to change anything? Of course not. Um, all, like Trump didn't really say anything in there that he didn't already say a hundred times. Um, uh, so um, the unredacted Mueller report has some interesting detail of precisely the type we expected it to have. Uh, it has uh, the, um, uh, but look, anybody who needs who's like, well, I was really on the fence about the president's conduct based on the real Mueller report, is not going to be pushed over the edge by these marginal things. I think we just have to accept that a very large percentage of people don't care. Um, and uh, that's not to say that we shouldn't talk about it and we shouldn't, but, but I don't think we should kid ourselves that like, oh, now that we have the, the unredacted thing, uh, you know, Finally, people can be like, oh, yeah, that whole thing. Like, it turns out, you know, Don, Donald Trump Jr. really was, like, you know, pushing the edge of the law there. I mean, I, I just don't think it's going to happen. So I want to hear Sarah's thoughts on this, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I actually also kind of want to ask a question, which is, like, related to this, which is that for a very long time, for all of the Russia Mueller report kind of stuff, for all of this. Like, I have been in the belief system knowing the people that I know that vote for Trump and, like, knowing how... Th that, like, exactly like this type of thing, like, it does not matter what happens or what he does. Like, as he says, he could go out and that, he could shoot a person, like, in broad daylight, and it wouldn't matter. And this is, like, I really do believe that. Like, I do believe that the people that have lionized him and vote for him and are his loyals like do so out of like a sense uh that is like divorced from rationality and reason and any type of proof or evidence that you could ever give them ever because it just like doesn't it's as i said just like not a part of the thing what's interesting to me is like the extent to which this filters down to lesser characters that are get some trumpian leg as as Sarah has now poisoned my brain with. Um, but like, no, I'm serious. Like when, when are you like allowed to tie up a woman in your basement or get an $800 haircut or like go Those to a two aren't, plan rally aren't of without comparable a gravity. No, but like, I'm serious. Like what, do, like, do, like, like Trump can do whatever he wants, but what about his minions? Like, like, to what extent are they given the same grace? My oh, wait. two cents here, if I can. Yeah, um, of course. Okay, so I'm going to change my question, which was about Roe, to I was listening, Sarah, to you and JVL on the December 3rd secret pod and loving it, but I, got, I am just ripping my hair out to hear this equivocation uh which is trying to make 
actions that are taken by Ron DeSantis trying to find his 200 civilians to be part of his, um, you know, civilian court. This is this is um, authoritarianism happening right now. I've got um, on tyranny sitting over my shoulder here. I've got the graphic edition of on tyranny, which is lovely if you haven't seen it, um, because it has the pictures that tie into Snyder's words. And the fact of the matter is, like you were saying, this is 2022 is on us and we have got to get over this idea that, um, that we, that this isn't, that this is about something other than what it is, which is that the Republican Party is turning into an author, uh, well, you know. So yeah, Sarah, talk talk about this uh, DeSantis uh, core of armed uh, gubernatorial agents. How serious is it? uh, ben, I saw you tweet. So JVL read the, uh, the first I'd heard of it was like, I, I was reacting to it on the podcast. And so JVL was like reading it to me. And I was like, well, that sounds weird. But then I saw a bunch of people, including you, I thought, say, this is not weird at all. Like tons of states have this. This is not, um, this is not strange. This is not one of the things to be freaking out about. And so um, uh, you tell so me. I, so I don't know, honestly. I learned what about it. I learned about it on the podcast, listening to you guys, and I haven't gone back and studied it myself. Uh, sorry, this is, uh, Kate, a, uh, is it a proposal or a, le- a legis- piece of legislation that has passed in Florida um, in which- So the- my understanding is it's a proposal by Ron DeSantis that he wants to put together a civilian uh, an, a group that's basically like- I guess they'd be armed, but you could call them in 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 lieu of uh, the police if you needed extra hands. And it sounded a little it sounds a little bit like, you know, it's really gross when you sort of first hear about it, because he was like, oh, you know, I think that the case that they made was they would help with, you know, hurricanes and, and trying to help help people. But the the concern is it sort of sounded like militarizing civilians and like a kind of a private army and things like that. But then I just saw a bunch of smart people that I respect say, like, this is not a thing to freak out about. Like, Texas has this. Uh, New York has this. Lots of states have these civilians. Yeah, that I would also de- say that, like, I didn't look at it, but I know that, like, such things exist all the time. I mean, they're not actually so different from any type of organized, like, So my question is, how they're, is like an, They're the like a more police. organized version of Neighborhood Watch. Um, it would well, but no, but it reports the to the governor. Yeah, but like so, it would depend. Yeah, well, it would. That's what I was just going to say. It would depend on who it reports to and what like they're imagined in terms of like their weaponization and things like so, that. Like, but so my question is, how is it different from the state police in in most states, right? Which also can be called out by the governor. They're also armed. Yeah, but these the well, they're also trained very specifically, and I think there's like a higher level of there's accountability. Like, yeah, there's like a whole like there's a whole process in which people are trained or like selected and trained as state police and qualify as state police. This is more ad hoc, kind of like almost like a national guard. Like it's like uh like it's it's a it is mo it, right. Like I mean like unless I'm like misunderstanding this, like this sounds like a national guard slash like not like kind of like a ad hoc kind of like civilian population, Ben. I, I got This is one of those things I don't know enough about to really okay. comment on. And so I'd, be, I'd, I'd rather answer her broader question, which is about, is the Republican Party becoming authoritarian? And you know what's funny? It's not funny. What's interesting is that there's there's gradations to what's happening in the Republican Party because there are silly people, right? Just performance artists, uh, like is Marjorie Taylor Greene an authoritarian or is Marjorie Taylor Greene like a lunatic uh, attention seeker? Um, and like, and, and Donald Trump is always- Char- no los dos. Yeah, well, Charlie Charlie talks about this sometimes. There's like a clown well with said, a- Well said, Ben. A clown in, with a- fl- In the oh, language of the enemy. 
Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, like, like, is Trump, Trump is a, Trump has authoritarian tendencies in the sense that he wants to be like, why can't I just wave a wand and do whatever I want? I'm the president of the United States. But he also has like no real agenda, right? He yeah. didn't have, yeah. like, he didn't aspire to be an authoritarian because he had a thing that he wanted to do at his core, like some political set of beliefs other than like a random smattering of, um, you know, America first uh, things. But there, so so there's the, the authority, sometimes I'm, sometimes I don't know how to respond to the authoritarianism stuff because the stuff that's scary to me is the fact that there are, Republicans have what I've always felt like is a kind of healthy skepticism of institutions. I have healthy skepticisms of institutions. I think it's part of the um, sort of the the makeup that that brings people to conservatism that has now turned into kind of a toxic grievance-based distrust of everything, conspiratorial um, mindset. And as a result, they just like they distrust everything and they reach for sort of strong men um, but they're like clownish strong men. And this is where, but there's a, there's a, there's, you can be like Ross Douthat, who's always like, Trump's too much of a clown to be worried about, which is wrong. You should be worried about it. You should be worried that Steve Bannon is talking about having an army of people who become poll watchers and, and that are meant, it, and it's just like, and Bannon would say, well, they're just citizens participating, except that they're all hopped up on grievance and and rage and it's not like they're there to be like i'm here because i would like to exercise my neutral civic duty of being somebody who works at the polls it's like no we are an army of people who think you guys stole an election and we are here to like enforce something in some way and so i just my only point is that like there's layers to this and it's sometimes it's too much to just say they're an authoritarian party because in a lot of ways they're a clownish party, which isn't to say they're not dangerous. Like this is what Charlie says, like a clown with a flamethrower still has a flamethrower. And so like you've, you've got to sort of think about it like that, but uh, it's not like undoing authoritarianism in some of these other countries uh, because ours are made up of people who are like game show hosts. But yeah, but can I also just, okay, I love this point. And can I just put some this one actual, this one other element of it, which is that to your point, a lot of people very typically in movements that have popular take up do not have theoretical or pragmatic underpinnings to support the intuition that they are able to like, I don't know, perform or to like hang their political movement on that like gives them their power so that they don't know what to do once they have that power. There's no kind of like, there's no kind of thesis, so to speak. There's a feeling that they're, that there's a feeling that they're able to grapple with, but then that's it. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. All right, Terry, we don't want to Alice you. <laughs> the floor is yours. So my question, I, I'm in Ohio. And our state legislature is considering a divisive content bill, which is also like the anti-CRT bill. And it's not just Ohio. Those are, I think it's probably an ALEC bill. It shows up in a lot of places. And I could go through who's on which side and what, what I've seen. And we all know the arguments about free speech and all that kind of stuff. My question is, how do you make an appeal to a state legislator that they shouldn't support such legislation? Well... Uh, it depends on the legislature, legislator and what the opportunities are for convincing them. Like, uh, I, I mean, that I don't know how to answer that in a, in a, in a broad terms, um, because a big part of what's happening with legislators is that, like, uh, they're, they're, they're people who, like, what's that old, what's that phrase about, um, uh, I don't know, whatever they're like leading from behind right the the voters what the vote what's happening is that the voters just have a general skepticism of elections and so the republicans are saying okay well uh which of course trump has given them there's a reason that they have it. everybody forgets this part but like so now there's the skepticism and so they're saying well we're gonna put it now we're gonna put in these new and it's different in all of these states uh, what they're doing in Wisconsin, right, where they're making them making them partisan, they're, they're getting rid of the nonpartisan uh, election boards like that stuff is really scary because they're basically politicizing everything that used to be sort of a neutral civic institution. Um, but like, 
how do you convince them? I, I mean, I don't. You, you, the way you convince them is that it's unpopular to the people who elect them and that they don't want them to do it. The problem is, is that the people in their party want them to do whatever. They don't really know the mechanisms. They're just demanding that you secure the elections. And so that gives people who want to be able to use it to secure their own power a lot of the cover that they need to make moves, to politicize things, and to put themselves in sort of political power uh, when, yeah, I mean, that that's it. That's what's happening. And I don't know how to, you don't, you're not going to convince them not to do it unless they, A, are the kind of person who have a conscience who would say, well, this is wrong and bad for democracy. The way that you convince them is nobody's going to tolerate this. Either your peers aren't going to tolerate it or your voters aren't going to tolerate it. Problem is right now the voters and their peers tolerate it. Yeah, I would just I would just say as a general matter, the problem is not persuading legislatures. Um, once an idea like uh, CRT, you know, an anti-CRT law has hit a legislature, you're probably too late on the persuasion game. This is a uh, 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 and the reason is those legislature legislators are beholden to constituencies that are excited about this. And so you've already lost an argument at a public level that somebody thinks it's in their political advantage or a majority of the legislature thinks that it's their, in their political advantage to advance something like this. And I think the... I think honestly, this is a a, a human persuasion issue um, more than a legislative persuasion issue, at least in the first instance. Uh, we are gonna end uh, a little early today because Sarah and I have to get to the French embassy, uh, but Eric Berg, you get the final question. Yeah. Um... Has there been any good focus group information coming out on what Americans think of the court and Roe that would give us any political hints on the fallout from that? Uh, you know, uh, I haven't done one on Roe. Uh, the last one I did was on with, was with Biden voters who voted for Youngkin in Virginia. Um, and I'm actually taking just a slight uh, three-week hiatus before I start recording the second season of the focus group uh with in the primary states um next year here's here's this is one thing though that i'll tell you just from having done lots and lots of focus groups that i i've a lot of people called me when they're after the oral arguments a lot of reporters called and they're like what do, what do you what do you know how do you think people react will women in the suburbs you know just totally freak out about this and i'm i'm a little bit uh, and I don't know what you guys are hearing, but my I I've done I've just done hundreds and hundreds of these focus groups and like abortion doesn't come up. It's not a driving factor for people. Um, uh, we did our entire secret podcast on on this on on Friday or not our entire one because we also talked about musicals. Um, but I'm just I'm a little bit. Look, I think if there's a big decision that 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 is that that is a what like a five four decision that overturns Roe there will be political fallout of some kind. Like there will be a reaction and I think it could motivate the democratic base, but like, will it crater Republicans in the suburbs? I'm not sure that the level of intensity is there on this issue the way it used to be. And I think part of that comes from the fact that the world has changed a lot, right? There's just, a, you have universal access, just a lot more access to birth control. You have morning after pills. There's all kinds of reasons why I think it's just the level of urgency is different in voters, but there's also a bunch of other problems that people have. Um, and so I'm not, I think it takes away a big issue for Republicans. I do think it swaps, like then Democrats are on offense and Republicans are now on defense and have to own it. And they've been allowed to take really extreme positions on abortion, knowing that the courts would defend them, that though no one would ever fall through for it. So in some ways I do think they could be like the dog that catches the car, but I'm just, I am like somewhat skeptical. I'm not sure about this. I could be totally wrong. Just based on how seldom, the only time I hear abortion come up is from Republicans who use it as an excuse for why they voted for Donald Trump. I never hear it as a reason for Democrats as to why they're motivated about something. Yeah, that's like insane to me. I mean, I like, I literally vote like on abortion 
Like, I mean, like I, I, I actually, I vote, like I will not vote for people who will put people in positions to like vote an abortion. It's because I see it as like an economic, I know I'm in the minority on this. I know that. I know that like I'm much more principled than like, but this is, I, but I also agree with you and having studied, frankly, Sarah, um, for and and I mean like studied like really like interviewed like Phyllis Schlafly and like Karen DeCrow and like other women that like staged the stop ERA kind of movement that came out of the kind of the Christian conservative right that was mobilized after Roe and because of Roe um like I I do think that kind of the the animating principles and the moral principles around Roe and the direness of it is much more suited to mobilize people who are believe themselves to be like pro-life or anti-choice or however you want to kind of put it like I think that it aligns um for psychological reasons in that way but I I mean I will say that like I I, I unfortunately agree with you like I don't see many people outside my sphere uh ever talking about abortion it is a fringe issue like especially when i go home to rochester and talk to people that i know are republican and this is also this i mean this is less so i would say it comes up even less than it did when i was in high school and i talked to those people like that it like it really is like less of an issue than it ever was. And maybe you're right because of the technological issues and like the fact that people like have like more pervasive like access to birth control, that there is more access to knowledge around female reproductive health or that there's more kind of over, maybe there's just more globalism and so more availability to like travel and get an abortion or something like that if you have to. But that being said, I still like, man, it's- I want to sound a cautious dissenting note on this and suggest that there are uh, there is reason to believe that the Democratic groundswell, if you actually overturned Roe, uh, is going to be greater than would show up in Sarah's focus groups before you do. And uh, let let me give you one reason to believe that. People are always more energized by the perception of losing than they are by the perception of winning. The pro-life mm, side has had, a 50, has had a 50-year streak of perceiving that it has lost. And the energy on the pro-life side, to a large degree, it's animated by two things. One is the sense that, I'm speaking from their point of view, we lost we need to start winning. We need to roll back the gains that the other side made, which were at our expense. The second is the fact, and this is the fact that something that it won't change if Roe um, is overturned, is that I do think if if you really believe that a fetus is a human life, that is there's an urgency to that that is probably not probably greater than the urgency associated with believing that your rights are being threatened. That said, I don't think we know how much energy there is in the pro-choice movement as a voting matter until they are on the losing side. When you have, uh, you know, 15, 20 million suburban women who are, who feel like their rights not may be taken away, have been taken away, that the Supreme Court you know, five men and Amy Coney Barrett have taken away their their what they understand to be their fundamental rights. Uh, I think that may be a more galvanizing thing than would show up in a focus group for Sarah six months before it happens. When, let's be honest, the pro-choice movement has been saying it's going to happen for fifty years, and people are really used to the 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 in this case, women who cried wolf effect with respect to abortion rights. And so I think we won't know how important it is until the day they do it. Um, and uh, and I'm, not, I'm not saying you and Sarah are wrong about it. I'm just saying it's an open question in my mind. 
I think it's a great point. And I would say that like, Sarah, would you also say that like your understanding of the, I mean, I don't think anyone saw before Blackman's decision, specifically how Blackman created that decision and like specifically the wording in row, like until like that was created, like, I don't think there was cohesion or understanding. I mean, like he created a trimester framework that literally had not been like, that wasn't even medically true. Like, and like, you know, that, that was not something that was like, you know, doctors told people trimesters came from like Roe v. Wade. Like that is like literally something that he created. And I think that there's, I don't know. I think that like Ben has a really great point here. I, I, so I think Ben has a great point too. And I, I, I totally, I, so I agree that we, we don't know. My, my point is that there's a lot of people saying they're sure people will be in the streets over this and that it will be a massive electoral boom. And I'm, I'm not sure of that. Uh, I, I would well, not take that position necessarily. But, it, but let's Roe, just say Roe wasn't a, an electoral. Are you going to say that, Ben? Sorry. I was going to say, like, the, the key point is the one that Sarah is making, which is we actually don't know. It could be that a huge number of pro-choice women are pro-choice, and that's an, one issue among many. It could be that the moment their actual abortion rights are at risk, um, it's a single issue issue for them the way it's been a single issue for issue for many pro-life voters since 1973 or since the religious right really uh, galvanized on it. And I, I and I just think that's a hypothesis that we've got to remain agnostic about and we shouldn't either wish cast or doom cast on. Uh, we're going to find out. I mean, it's, it's happening. Yeah. Um, we got to leave it there because go. Sarah and I have an embassy to go to. I got to put on I'm heels put on for the first tie. time in two years. Will you guys send me a selfie? I kind of, I can't, with Lucienne. We'll send you oh a selfie God. with Lucienne. Oh. <laughs> All right. We're going to be back tomorrow. Got no idea who the audience, who the guest is going to be, but it'll be somebody I'm fun. I it's going to be Dwayne Betts. It we'll may see. be Dwayne Betts. It may be somebody else. Um, that'll be, but it will be 22 hours and 58 minutes from now. And until then, Kate? Um, je ne sais pas. C'est uh, le, le, le soir de French podcast. Oui? Oui? Oui. Bye. Oui? oui? Bye. <laughs>